Father, we, we come before you. We thank you for the gathering together of the brethren, as is the habit of some. And the men getting together, it was just a great time, Lord, to uh, have fellowship with the guys who are up there, and as well as here Sunday morning. And we also know that according to your word and our experience, we have fellowship with you and with your spirit that dwells within. Uh, we pray for that closeness to be manifested every day, Lord, that we know that your presence is with us and your blessings are guiding us and are to be had by us if we just simply trust in you. So, Father, as we do that, we would ask for your blessing on the word as it goes forth. May it have its effect. May you fill us full of knowledge, not so that it puffs up, but so that it builds up and that we may be an encouragement to those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm just going to give you the context again of where we are. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey in the area of Asia Minor. So if you want to put up that first map there uh, that has Bithynia and Galatia and, and Cappadocia, those, yeah. Now, that is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. Uh, if you were to go over to Turkey and to the left of that, that is Greece on the other side. This is the area where Paul was ministering. And this is where several of the New Testament churches were located. And the missionary journey that they went on, and this again is the map of the missionary journey, if you want to put that up over there. That's the route that Paul took. So he was there in the island of Cyprus. Um, he went to Salamis and to Paphos and up to Perga, Perga and Pisidia, Antioch and Iconium. And that's the way he came back around as well. So they're on foot. They're just walking this on foot. And, you know, it took them a while to get this accomplished. But in Acts chapter 13, verse 14, we have what they were doing. They went from Perga then they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And if you remember, Paul gave them a brief history lesson. And we know that from verse 27, they didn't recognize Jesus, who he was, and that he was the one that the prophets had written about. So we have covered all of that. Now, verse 28 says of chapter 13, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, I'm going to focus on Pilate a little bit, who this guy was. He's mentioned 60 times in the New Testament. And since he's mentioned so many times, it's probably good that we should know who he is and, and what he did. And we actually have a lot of information about him. His first name was Mark or Marcus Pontius Pilate. <coughs> Excuse me. And he is the man who gave the final order for Jesus to be crucified. Because the Jews in the Old Testament law, there were cases that could be adjudicated for capital crimes. Uh, and if those capital crimes were carried out, it's usually by stoning is what they would do. Well, the Romans took that power away from the Jews, and they could only carry out a capital offense by getting the Romans to do it. They had to approve of it, and it was Pontius Pilate who approved that at the behest of the leaders of the Jews. Now, Marcus, of course, is his first name. Then Pontius is the family name that comes from Ponti or Ponti. 
and it's a plebeian family name. And you go, plebeian? What's a plebeian family name? Do you ever remember being called or someone calling you or hearing in your earshot somebody say, oh, you're just a plebe, something like that? That means you're lower class. You're down below the aristocracy. You're just a low life. You're a laborer. You don't amount to anything. And so there were these Roman citizens. They had this hierarchy, which was there. And according to Eusebius, we know that Pontius Pilate was born Roman citizen in the city of Vicente, Italy. And he was a citizen of the Equitus class. Now, what is Equitus? It comes from the world, or from the word equus, which where we get our word equine, equestrian, which means you ride horses. And that's a level of status in the Roman society. And so he was a, like a cavalry man. He was a knight. He would ride on horses, and that's the level that he maintained. And you could just imagine him in his full garb being up on a horse and that's who he was and looked kind of proud up there. And so there was these different levels, different status, uh, different levels of living in Rome. And it started with Caesar and his family. They were the top. They were the one that everybody sort of bowed to and paid homage to. Then there was the senators or the patricians. Now, the patricians were the ones who held power right underneath Caesar. Now, I like this word patricians because my wife is named Patricia, which means noble. And I come from the plebeians. So I married up, you know, and, and I think that that's good. I was looking at that. Wow, that's, that's great. Patty is a noble person and I'm not so much. I'm just a common low life. So I made out on that. So you have Caesar, you have the senators, you have the equestrians, which were the knights, which were rulers as well. Then below them, you had the aristocrats and the magistrates. Below them, you had the merchants and the soldiers and the artisans. They were the plebeians. And then you had the manual laborers who were free. And then you had the slaves. Now, the plebeians were not allowed to marry the patricians. They, they couldn't do that. They weren't allowed to intermix. It's kind of like the caste system in India. You could never move up in your caste. You were stuck there. Uh, and even today, that's the case in India. But back then, that was the case with them. Now, there was another classification in Roman society in a military sense. There was a legate. Now, a legate would be somebody who was over thousands of troops. They were answerable directly to Caesar and they would be over a particular area maybe several different areas and they would handle those troops and it was the case with Pontius Pilate he could never rise to that he was not in that particular category of citizen <coughs> excuse me so uh, that's kind of the the caste system that they had now Pilate he was a wealthy man the amount of money that he would make per year would be a hundred thousand denarii. Now a common laborer would make one denarii per day. He would make the equivalent of 450 soldiers. That's how wealthy he was. And a soldier would be equivalent to uh, one and a quarter denarii per day. A senator would make 200,000 denarii in a year. So he was right below the senators as far as the money was concerned. And they had a lot more buying power back then than we do today. 
Uh, and, and so if they only made a denarii a day, they still had plenty left over, but they couldn't go out and buy expensive things. The common laborer could not do that. There just wasn't enough money for that. Now, he was also called a prefect and a procurator. And he was a prefect and a procurator over the Judean uh, province. Now, he was appointed under Tiberius Caesar. When we go to Israel in the Sea of Galilee, we're going to go to the city of Tiberias, which is a city named after, of course, uh, Caesar Tiberius or Tiberius Caesar. And the hometown, so to speak, of Pilate, where he ruled from was Caesarea Maritima. And we're going to be going to that city as well. That's where he ruled from. And he had jurisdiction over all criminal cases for a 100 miles surrounding that city. And that city was the capital of Judea for the Roman government. Now, a prefect is just a governor. That's what the governor is. And as I just said, he acquired full criminal jurisdiction within 100 miles of the city. And a procurator is one who managed the finances and taxes of the region. So he had kind of a dual role. He, he was the one in charge in that area. Now, according to the historian Josephus, prefects in Judea were able to appoint and depose the high priest in the temple and also had managerial status over the funds that were uh, dedicated to the temple. He could go in and take funds from the temple. Of course, you know how that that would turn out with the Jews. But this probably gives us um, a little more information because there were two high priests at the time. There was Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. When the Roman government came in, they deposed Annas. But for the Jews, he was still the high priest. But Caiaphas was a little more agreeable, amenable to the Roman government. And so they put him in charge as the political figure. But Annas was the one that was pretty much in charge of the Jews. And it says in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 13, they bound him and brought him first to Annas. This is talking about Jesus, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So there were two high priests at the time, and they just kind of dealt with it. But we know what was going on there. Now, Pilate also, he had a wife. (coughs) And her name, by tradition, in the Gospel of Nicodemus, that's an extra-biblical gospel that's out there, her name was Procula. And Procula, of course, she had a dream in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. It says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. This is when he's adjudicating the case of Jesus. Sends this message right to him, and he, oh, he's, Jesus is right before him. He opens up this message, and this message says, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Should have taken the advice of his wife, but if he did, then Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross and we wouldn't have salvation. So we know that it was God's will that she understood, Procula understood that this guy's a special guy. And that will later turn out, I'll give you some more information on that. So according to the third century early historian, Father Origen, or Origen, says that she may have become a Christian later on. So that's probably why she had the dream. And the Lord has done that for several people. There's a book by Tom Doyle right now. Uh, You can get it. It's about uh, Muslims in the Middle East. God God is saving them. They're having dreams about 
Jesus. Jesus is appearing to them, and they're getting saved. So this isn't the first time, of course, in the Old Testament, you know that Daniel had dreams as well as Joseph, and God can speak through dreams both in the past, and he speaks now, and he will do so in the future. Now, Pilate, he had problems and conflicts that he encountered while ruling over Judea. He was kind of in a precarious situation because he ruled over a stiff-necked people. He could not get them to comply, even in the cases where he would threaten them with death. Now, there were five to six major conflicts. If you count the sixth one, it would have been uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, of course, we know that Herod and Pilate became friends where previously they were enemies before the crucifixion of Jesus, but they had the same goal in mind. Now, I'm going to give you what these conflicts were just to give you a flavor of where Pilate was. Again, there's a a stiff-necked people that will not comply to the orders or the edicts that he brings forth. And he's constantly dealing with them. I'm sure he's just pulling his hair on like, these people, you know, he's just getting frustrated with them. Well, the first one was Roman standards. Now, do you have that picture, Daryl, <coughs> of the Roman standards, which are, these are what the Romans would carry at the front of marches, and these standards, they would hold them, and they would march with these, you know, and they'd go along, and that's what they would hold up, are these things. Now, some of these, if you look at them, I can just get my picture here. The first one over there, you see a little idol, an image that's up in there. It looks like an eagle uh, that's up in there. Then the next two, you see images. And those images could be of the Caesars or previous Caesars, that type of thing. And the next two are serpents. And then you have some with just symbols on them. And the last one that you have there is what the uh, standard bearer would wear when they would carry it. So this is what is known as a Roman standard. Uh, if you've ever seen marching bands, now when I was in junior high, I was in a marching band. I had the fur hat and the black suit and I played the trumpet and French horn and, and, uh, not the trombone, but the baritone. And, you know, it was just, it was kind of fun, uh, to do that. Had some musical training in that. And as you're marching along, you have the person who is in front. The drum major is what they called him, and they had this big staff, and he holds it, and he goes like this, and he carries it around, and sometimes he flips it. Well, that's kind of like the Romans. You know, they had that only they held it stationary, and the troops would follow that. They could see it from behind because they'd hold it up high. Well, Pilate, he offended the Jews by bringing Roman standards, bearing images of the emperor into Jerusalem. The Jews thought that this violated Jewish law, no graven image. And on the sixth day of the protest, Pilate sent in soldiers to disperse the protesters under penalty of death. They said, if you guys don't disperse, we're going to start killing you. So what did the stiff-necked people do? The Jews threw themselves on the ground and prepared for death rather than violate their law. So what's Pilate going to do? Now, he can get in trouble by the people in Rome, so he relented. He goes... All right, he took them away is what he did. So he was kind of embarrassed by what took place there. So that was the first one. 
Then there was this idea of building an aqueduct. What he did is he went to the temple and he took money from the temple to build this aqueduct. Now at, at uh, Caesarea Maritima, you're going to see an aqueduct that has been built there and it raises up, you know, just to get the elevation right. <clears throat> and that's what he took money to build an aqueduct to bring more fresh water into Jerusalem. And the Jews protested that. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Pilate got frustrated with them. And he told his soldiers, get in there and beat the stuffing out of those people and get them to disperse. Well, they went a little farther and they killed a few of them, which, you know, it it ended up going into protest. And so the Jews really hated this guy for what he was doing. And that was the second little faux pas that he had going on, killing people that he should not have killed because he took money from the temple, which he had the power from Rome to do. But with this uprising, it doesn't look good on his resume, so to speak. And then there were Galileans that he killed. Now, this is referenced in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And so sometime after these first two incidents, there were some riots. And Pilate had several Galileans executed when they were offering sacrifices. And so the sacrifices, the blood of them was mixed with the blood of the Galileans up in the district of Galilee. And that was another bad mark on him because he was killing the people and killing the people just because they were rioting. Now, they could probably execute one or two here, but if you start killing several people, that reflects bad on you in Rome as well as bad on you with the Jews. And so see how this is just kind of building up. Like He can't get these people to conform and just fall in line and do what Rome wants to do. And Rome could be very brutal. Then there was this idea of shields. Pilate introduced shields in Jerusalem that were inscribed referring to either Augustus or Tiberius as the divine ruler of the world. Now, who did the Jews think was the divine ruler of the world? God alone. And so that was on the shields that the guys would carry. And that erupted into a, excuse me, that erupted into a riot. And, of course, a complaint was registered with Tiberius, and Pilate complied with the order to remove them that came directly from Rome. It's like, just can't get this right. You know, he he keeps on trying to do good by being a ruler, and the obstinate and stiff-necked Jews keep on getting in his way. Then there was this guy, this false messiah, and his name was Marcellus. Now, Marcellus claimed to be a messiah. But he claimed to be the Messiah for the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. He said, let's go up to Mount Gerizim. I'm going to show you some artifacts that Moses buried on Mount Gerizim. And so they started going up this way. Well, Pilate got word of it. And Pilate said, you know, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to bring these people because he thought it might be an insurrection of some kind. So he got in the middle of the road. He stopped them from going up there. Then he went into the village where they were all kind of hanging out. And he started beating the stuffing out of them again, killing them again. And a lot of the followers, the leaders of this group, they were killed. Well, Marcellus complained. And when Marcellus complained, he complained to another Roman official. And that Roman official said, you need to go to Rome to answer for these atrocities that you have committed. And Marcellus was appointed prefect of the area. It's like, well, just what's going on? So he is supposed to go to Rome to see Tiberius. But Tiberius died before he got there. And so it's like, 
man, what are you going to do? And then Caligula comes to power. And then after that, Claudius, you know, and, and all these Roman emperors are there. So what happened to um, Pilate after that? Well, his final days before he made it to Rome, of course, Tiberius died. And there was one account that under Caligula, Pilate suffered some misfortune and was exiled to Gaul, which is France. That's the area we know as France. That was in the year between 37 and 38 AD. And it said, it is said that he committed suicide there because of depression. Now, I could see it, you know, all these different, and these are the major things that happened. We don't know about the minor things that happened, but then there was a second and third century account. And it was made by Tertullian. He claims that Pilate suffered no misfortune whatsoever. He was not exiled and probably lived out his days as a magistrate in Italy. And it has been suggested that he became convinced of the divine nature of Jesus and can be regarded to this day as a Christian. So will we see Claudia and, or Claudia, not, excuse me, not Claudia, but uh, Procula? And Pontius Pilate in heaven? We just might. We might see them there. We just don't know exactly what happened to them. But he had a terrible time uh, in Israel. And of course, the sixth thing would have been Jesus and the crucifixion that was there. And the fallout from that, you know, probably was not as much as the other ones because he did the will of the Jews. And the Jews at that time, that's what they wanted. So things seem to be going a little well. Now, verse 29 says, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, obviously, this wasn't a tree. They were just referring to the cross that Jesus was on. And they laid him in a tomb. Now, we're going to go to Israel. And in Israel, we're going to go to the garden tomb. I haven't looked at the itinerary to see if we're going to go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Because these are two competing areas. Now, the first one is the garden tomb. I want to show you that picture. This is the garden tomb. And it it really is a nice garden setting. Back behind where this picture is, there's a lot of benches. And you go a little bit farther back, and there's some buildings. And you can buy olive wood carvings there. And they usually give you an olive wood little cup and that's what you receive communion in and somebody leads the communion there sometimes uh, somebody will sing for that and prayers will be offered and you'll receive communion at this garden tomb and it's kind of shaded it's it's a really nice area and uh, you know you always go is it authentic is this the place is that the place that jesus was laid and you can walk into the tomb and you can see it in there. Last time I was there, there was an iron gate where the, the level portion was where the body of Jesus would have been laid. And you can look around in there and then you come back out and you can see where the stone would have rolled in this channel. There's a channel right in front of that door there. And, the, and there was a big stone that would have been rolled into the place and it would have been sealed at that time uh, by the Romans where nobody could get there. There would have been two soldiers out front if this was the place. Is it the place? I don't think so. I don't think this is the place, even though we're going to end up there. The place that I think, and I've been listening to some authorities on this, two archaeologists. Uh, one was on Sean McDowell, uh, his podcast. And I, have, I ordered the book, and I was going through the book, and I was listening to another podcast with another guy who's an archaeologist there. He's been there for just decades digging up. And both of them have concluded 
that the actual tomb of Jesus is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, that's the next picture. If you want to show that, this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the outside of the church. <coughs> Excuse me. And then inside, uh, you want to show the next picture? This is what is in... Now, from the outside, it goes, wow, is it that big on the inside? Yeah, it's that big. Inside of this area, if I'm not mistaken, there is a stone which is there where they believe the body of Jesus was prepared for internment, for being placed in the cave, so to speak, in the uh, the tomb. And, and that's what would be in this building. But then there's the next picture... This is inside where Jesus' body would have been laid. And these archaeologists say that, yeah, this is probably the place. Because there's only so many tombs that you could point to and say, this is the one. Now, the area around this, it has been carved away. uh, And this area is being preserved. There's one more picture here of a monk. He is in front of the area they took off there's a smooth marble slab that was on top and they were redoing that and it gets down to the rock where Jesus actually would have been laid there and as I just uh, said and have reiterated the archaeologists they are like 99% sure that this is in fact the place where Jesus was laid Now, I don't know how much free time we would have when we get to Jerusalem, but we may want to go over there. There's there's always a line, you know, to get in those things. And if it's not on our itinerary, you'd have to pay to get in there to see it and that type of thing. And uh, there's a lot of people in there. And I would consider it a indeed a holy place, just like the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. I don't think we're going to Bethlehem. It's under the control of the Muslims over there. I've been in that church, and it's quite a remarkable church. And these archaeologists said, yeah, that is probably the authentic place, the birthplace of Jesus. And if you go into that place, you will see two nuns, two sisters that are sitting there, and they have prayer around the clock. Somebody is always sitting there, always praying, and that they think they have the actual birthplace of Jesus. And so it's kind of exciting to see these things. If you know who Jesus was, that he was God incarnate, came down, and this is the place that he actually stood or he actually laid, and you are actually there. You know, it's kind of like um, when we go to the Temple Mount area, there's going to be what is known as the Dome of the Spirits, and it is to the north of the Alas mosque and the dome of the rock now a lot of people say that's the dome of the rock that is the place of the old temple i it's not my opinion that that is even though that is a, a widely held opinion i think it's more at the dome of the spirits where the dome of the spirits is it lines up completely with the gate beautiful and it is the bedrock and the bedrock is the place where the holy of holies would have been the jews will not go up there Because they feel if they do, they could step on the place that is the Holy of Holies, and they don't want to step on that place. So they don't go up there, at least the the devout Jews, the leaders, they they don't go up there. And they're usually prohibited from going up there. When we go up there, they're going to tell you, you can't pray. Right. 
<clears throat> you can pray all you want to when you go up there. You know, it's just the, the corporate prayer type of thing. They don't want you doing that because you could cause an international incident. Hands would be flying in the air and Allahu Akbar and all that kind of stuff would be going on. You, you just don't want to do that. So, but it, it lines up with the East Gate, the Gate Beautiful, which Zechariah says, Jesus will land on the Mount of Olives and be a great earthquake. The land will split to the south and to the north and he's going to walk right through the graveyard, which is a priest is not supposed to expose himself to dead bodies and he's going to go right through that gate and it will go up to the holy of holies up to the rebuilt temple up there and so that's why i think it's going to be it also says in scripture that the court of the gentiles has been given to the or excuse me the outside outer courts have been given to the gentiles and there's going to be a dividing wall between the temple that is to the north and to the south the dome of the rock so i think those two areas are going to exist simultaneously so who specifically saw jesus after the resurrection verse 30 says but god raised him from the dead and for many days he was seen by those who have traveled with him from galilee to jerusalem they are now his witnesses to our people so who saw him i mean how many people saw him we know that there are several cases the first one i think was mary at the tomb in john chapter 20 (coughs) excuse me in verse 10 through 17 i'll just read it to you It says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and this would be the church of the Holy Sepulchre, saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Of course, the woman said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell him, tell them I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. I mean, Mary was probably just unconsolable at that point just clinging tenaciously to jesus and jesus going okay mary just come on just and she's going no you know she sees him and it's a fantastic meeting and like i said this is at the church of the holy sepulcher if you were outside there you're walking around okay so where exactly would this have been you know you're going to try to imagine it in your mind what's going on so we had mary at the tomb then you had and i don't know if exactly these are the correct order of these appearances but the road to emmaus remember these two guys walking along it says in luke chapter 24 verse 13 now that same day two of them were going to a village called emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened as they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Hey guys, what's up? That's the vernacular of our day. They stood still, their faces downcast. Like One of them named Cleopas 
asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, come on, man. Haven't you seen what's going on? Jesus goes, what things? Tell me about it. I could just see Jesus just playing off of him, you know. Oh, what's up? Tell me. Oh, really? What's going on? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study that would have been. And he's walking along and then finally he said, okay, I'm going to go in and eat with you guys. And as soon as he broke the bread, they go, it's Jesus. And is gone oh man that that would have been so frustrating they got up immediately and went back to jerusalem and i bet they ran seven miles now i don't know about you how much you walk or don't walk in my day you know i always click off six thousand steps sometimes i get to fifteen thousand sometimes i get to twenty thousand steps in a, in a day and people back then that's mostly the transportation they had were two feet they didn't have some type of transportation they were used to walking used to walking long distances lots of miles like capernaum was 73 miles from jerusalem you know and somebody would walk that take a couple of days and they'd be there when we used to take the youth backpacking up in the high sierras to yosemite starting tuolumne and going down to the yosemite basin We would encounter people, and we went the easy way. We started at a higher elevation. We'd go up to Vogelsang and come down the other side, the backside of uh, Vogelsang there, down into the Yosemite Valley, and it, it was just wonderful to go that way. We would see people coming up from the valley floor the hard way, no packs, just a bottle of water, and usually some snacks, and they'd be doing 43 miles in one day. And the people that would serve at the highest point of Vogelsang there, they would hike up there in one day. No problem. They would just go up. And it's like it's no big deal. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. You know, that's, that's just a little far. That's a little hard. When we did it, we had 40-pound packs, and we're going the hard way, coming around and blisters and tired. And they just zipped through that thing like it was nothing. Everybody back then did the same thing they were walking and they had no problem doing that so these guys in the road to made they probably made it back in a six minute mile going all the way back in like 45 minutes they would have been back in jerusalem then there was peter in luke chapter 24 verse 34 there the lord had risen there given the account and has appeared to simon now simon had denied jesus three times and he made a point to appear just to simon Like, Simon, it's going to be okay. I know what you did, but you're still mine. 
And it's going to be just fine from here on out. Then there were multiple appearances of Jesus attested to by Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. I'll read it to you here. Verse 3. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So there's a group of 500 people. He just shows up. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm sure they were completely amazed. So all of these people have been witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he appeared to Thomas and the other disciples. Remember doubting Thomas? John chapter 20, verse 25 says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. There's that stiff-necked, stubborn Jew who's there just saying, You've got to show me. I'm just not going to hold to what you say. Verse 26 says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Okay, I I believe, I can see. He could see the wound. Jesus probably said, put your fist right here, here, right, right there where he was standing. And he holds out his hands. There's still gaping holes right there. Go, put your finger in there. It, see, it's me. And when Thomas said that, Jesus' physical presence wasn't there. He knew what had taken place. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are more blessed than even Thomas who had seen him in the flesh. Then the road to Damascus, we just went through this a couple weeks ago, Acts chapter 9. This is where a bright light flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. So all of these people, these are accounts of who saw Jesus and they were witnesses of his ministry. Now, some might say, well, Paul didn't see his ministry. Oh, on the contrary. I think Paul was one of those who probably traveled to the district of Galilee, was in the crowd watching what was going on. And he's the one that came later with letters from the chief priests and persecuted those who were Christians. He was around during that time. Now, was he serving with Jesus? Absolutely not. He was opposing Jesus and the disciples, looking for a case to make against Jesus to get him to stop. All because of his jealousy and his pride. And that was something that was endemic through the leadership of the Jews. Then in verse 32 of Acts chapter 32, it says, We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And of course, if you go to uh, Proverbs chapter 30, 
It says there, tell me his name and the name of his son, if you know it, referring to God, that he has a son. And it's, if you ever get involved in a conversation with a Jew, a friendly way, and you want to point out that God does have a son, you can point out to them, I think it's verse 4, Proverbs chapter 30. It, it, it intimates, it, it's implied that God said in the Old Testament that he has a son. And so it's not just God the Father. Even though we are monotheists and the Jews are monotheists, they would call us polytheists, that there are three gods, not just one God. But it directly says there, just like I read from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, recorded in this chapter, You are my son, today I have become your father. Verse 34, the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Of course, Abraham was given the promise that he would inherit the land and that he would have a generation that would come or generations would come that if you could count the sand on the seashore, you could count the descendants of Abraham. Now, Abraham, he is father to both many of the Arabs uh, and countries that scattered throughout the Middle East, as well as the Jews. Uh, some of us may have some uh, Jewish blood or some Semitic blood in us as well. I, I think you've heard me say I do. My grandfather was Jewish, and he defected from the faith to marry my Baptist grandmother. Of course, she must have been a hottie. I don't know what she looked like when she was young, but he said, no, I'm marrying this woman. This is who I'm going to marry. And we can't go back too far. His, his name was Markowitz and his records were destroyed. If I wanted to go back in the lineage, his records were destroyed in the earthquake and the fire that came after that in San Francisco in 1906. And so it's hard to follow back exactly where that went. We don't know if it was from Poland or if it was from Russia and the pogroms that were up there. The ancestors came over here. But many of you may have that same uh, Jewish blood within you or Semitic blood uh, of some kind. But it's this idea that it was given to David and to his lineage. But not only to them... But this person who would come would be a blessing to everyone on the earth, including the Gentiles or the pagans. Now, it says in verse 35, So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So when Jesus died on the cross, now normally uh, when somebody dies, the body, it, it almost immediately becomes cold to the touch. If you touch somebody who's alive, you... It, you feel like, well, they're, they're warm or, you know, they're alive, it's good. But if you've ever put your hand on somebody who has just passed away, it's almost immediate that the body becomes cold. And once it becomes cold, it's only a matter of hours before rigor mortis sets in. Now, rigor mortis, it just causes the body to stiffen and the body has to be manipulated like for a coffin if it's an open casket and I want to get too morbid on this but that's just the process of death and they were familiar with this process back then the mortality rate for infants and adults was just incredibly high and it was just part of their lives last time I was over in Jerusalem we were on the Temple Mount and there was a procession a funeral that was going by and uh, they had a brisk pace to them and they were going back behind some of the buildings on the Temple Mount. And there was probably 20 or 30 individuals. 
and they had a person in it, it was an open box the box probably had six inch sides on it all the way around and it had two handles coming out kind of like on the ark of the covenant you had the staves coming out and there was one on each side and there were four men that were carrying that maybe a total of six men two in the middle as well and there was a body just laid on top and it was covered i believe in a, a some type of shroud that was on top and they just passed right by us it was probably just five feet from us and they we just stood to the side and they we let them go by and they're familiar with that and if you go to israel of course you between the mount of olives and over in the temple mount there you have a graveyard i believe it's a jewish graveyard on the mount of olives side and on the other side it's a muslim graveyard there and that took place in either the fifth or seventh century i forget which one it is i think it was seventh century they, they put the graveyard over there uh, specifically because they knew the Messiah would be going through that gate. And, and that's not going to be a problem, as I have previously said. So uh, the rigor mortis sets in, and once that happens, the body will start to break down. It will start to decay. Once that decay takes place, the bacteria goes in there, the, the body swells, and it just starts to rot. That, that's what happens. And so what they would do is they'd take the body, they would place it, they'd prepare it, they'd put a lot of heavy spices on it, a very heavy scent to cover the bad scent, and they would, they would put the body in a tomb, and they would leave it there until it fully decayed. Once the body fully decayed, they would take the bones out, they would put them in an ossuary, which is a box, usually a marble box, and then they would set that marble box in a permanent tomb. And so that's what the tomb which Jesus was laid in was for. Uh, as I was stating in the Church of the Sepulchre, you had the stone place where they believed Jesus' body was prepared. Then they have the tomb that was there that his body would have been placed in. And on the third day, he rose from there. So his body did not see any form of decay whatsoever. And this prophecy was fulfilled. It goes on, says in verse 36, for when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep, which means he died. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So when the forgiveness of sins comes along, God looks at you and he looks at me. If we accept the forgiveness that he has, he says, you're justified. That word justified, it's a legal term that simply means you are declared now to be in right standing with the judge and with the law. You are no longer opposed to it. You are no longer hostile to it. All of that offense has been wiped away. It has been sponged. It's been deleted completely. As far as the east is from the west, so have our sins been removed. In the Old Testament, it was this idea of atonement. Uh, I was talking about this with the youth this last week. I, I said what does atonement mean and they kind of had blank stares and i don't know forgiveness or no and i i gave them one word uh, and the word was duvet and one of the kids said 
duvet cover? I said, precisely, that's it. A duvet cover. The atonement covered the sin, but it would not take away the guilt. The guilt was still there, but when God looked at the individual who made atonement or brought an atoning sacrifice, God would no longer hold that sin against him, but the sin was still there. It was covered. Where in the New Testament, God removes the covered, wipes out the sin, it is gone, and the guilt is taken with it. That's what the New Testament did. In the Old Testament, it just covered. New Testament, because of the sacrifice, the guilt had been removed. <clears throat> so that, that is the difference between what the Old Testament had happened with the forgiveness of sins and the New Testament. So we are justified, we are declared right, and this is also a warning to the Jews in Antioch in verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. This should get their attention. Like, oh. Now he's in a synagogue and they hold to the Old Testament scriptures and there were God-fearers in there as well, those who were Gentiles who believed in God. And he says, again, take care that what the prophet said does not happen to you. Well, what is that? Well, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 says, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never have believed even if someone told you. Now, it goes on to say that Babylon would come down and just destroy Judah. Previous to that, the Assyrian army went to the northern kingdom of Israel and took them away. They, they, they were just brutal in the Assyrian army. What they would do is they would take pregnant women and just cut them open. They would do things like that. They would slice off ears. They would slice off nose. They even talked about this at the men's retreat uh, yesterday. That, that's how brutal the Assyrians were. They would also put a ring in the lip, the lower lip of somebody, and they would tie that to a small rope, and a person on a horse would carry that. And if you fell down or if you fell behind, that ring would be pulled out. And it just horrible horrible treatment by the Assyrians the Babylonians were not much better they were just brutal and ruthless and God used the Babylonians to judge the nation of Judah because of their disobedience their uh, placating those who were evil uh, having injustice rule over justice that whole section of Habakkuk talks about that and that is what Paul is telling the Jews in the synagogue at Pisidia and Antioch you be careful that you don't have happened to you what happened to those Jews in Judah. And so he goes on to say, I'll read that again. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days you would not, would never believe even if someone told you. So his message was that was believe or be judged. Repent or perish. Now this is not popular today. If you go to a church and they say, God is love, he loves everybody. It is just wonderful that we are all God's creatures. We are all children of God. It is not true. We are invited to become children of God. How do you get the invitation to become something if you already are that? And, and to say that it's either repent or perish, that's like, well, that's not good news. And what we do in the church, a lot of times is we want the church to be, and there's a phrase for it, seeker-friendly where we don't have the bad news with the good news. You have to have bad news to have good news. The good news is God can save us from all the bad news. But you have to tell them the bad news. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying repent or perish. Don't make the same mistake 
that those previously living in Judah made. Verse 42, it goes on here to tell us some believed. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So this is a week afterwards. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So what happened? The next week, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the Jews who weren't accepting the message, what did they do? When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord had commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The whole time in this passage, he's quoting the Old Testament. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So you have this separation takes place. Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, Pisidia. They go into the synagogue. They're invited to speak. They speak. The leaders there, they don't like what they hear. They're filled with jealousy. They start to oppose Paul because all these people show up because of the news that they bring. The Gentiles love it. They say, oh, this is fantastic. We're appointed to salvation. Makes the Jews even more upset. And in verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standards. These were non Jews, women who were wealthy that had influence in the city and it says, and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their reign or region. So they took the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. What a story. Could you imagine going out and doing some evangelistic work and all of a sudden the whole village believes they all come to faith. And they're happy once you leave. You go, okay, great. Now just continue in faith. Well, to apply all of this, to wrap this up here, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to bring the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. At this particular point, they just said, okay, that's it. We're going to the Gentiles. Some believe and some rejected the good news of salvation. That's going to be the case with us as well. If you share the gospel, there are going to be people that just say, yeah, that's good. The last time, a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing with somebody and I was in their office and I was just telling them about the things of today and it started shifting to why it's like that, the spiritual underpinnings. And I started to get into the gospel a little bit. And I don't know, if, I'm sure it's the Lord. He just gives you that discernment. Like when somebody just shuts down, their, their eyes just kind of glaze over. And you go, okay, uh, I'm not going to give you any more. I'm just going to give you this much right here, and then I'm done. So there's always going to be people who are resistant to it. They don't want to hear the good news. They don't want to hear the bad news. They just want to do their own thing. God will give you wisdom if you're doing that. If you speak to somebody, he can, he can let you know. The Holy Spirit will testify on the inside. That's enough. Don't give them any more. Just leave them enough where it's like a pebble in their shoe. Have you ever had a little pebble in your shoe and you start walking? It's like every time you step down in there and you try to move it around, then you have to take off your boot or your shoe and get rid of it. And so there were those who harbored feelings and apparently because of the entire city turned out to hear the teachings of Paul, they became jealous 
It's like, why are you so popular? What's going on? And that jealousy on the inside, that's completely the flesh. And those who rejected it did so for nefarious, wicked, evil, and despicable motives. It was a selfish motive. And they stirred up, like I said, the prominent women and the men of the city who were non-Jews. And I was doing a devotion this um, weekend. And I, I got to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15. It says, Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. Because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. <clears throat> and what I took that to mean was there are those who claim to be leaders who speak for God. Those who would be pastors. Even those in, in government. You can go that way too. And they claim to speak for God or they claim to speak it's the right thing to do. They say things like that. And yet what's going to be the result? The people are going to be made to eat bitter food and drink poison water. Which means they're going to be sick and they're going to die as a result of not being taught properly what God has to say. And I think that needs to be a lesson for us. That those who reject the gospel, okay. But there's eternal judgment for them. And those who accept the gospel, there's going to be eternal bliss and life. That's the message that comes from this. Paul gave the warning in Antioch, the Pisidian Antioch up there. We should hold to it as well. And this is the good news. We want to save everyone that we can as the Lord uses us. We don't do the saving. But as the Lord uses us, we want to seek to get everyone saved that we possibly can. My encouragement to you is open your mouth. Tell people at the right time. There's a time for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be quiet. Ask the Lord for wisdom in this and encourage those who are not following the Lord to do so. I instructed our men this uh, weekend that, you know, if, if you're coming to church and, and you see a guy over there, encourage him. Say, hey, man, let's go to Bible study or, you know, how you doing? And find out what's going on in their life and, and just be a part of them, that experience that fellowship that is there. That is our job. So not only is it our job to reach out to others who need to be saved, but to encourage those as well who are in the faith. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray close it out father we we thank you for paul and barnabas their faithfulness to the truth we know what your truth is we know who you are our condition and what lies ahead in the future you have informed us may you give us boldness like paul had with the jews in antioch to speak your word so that some might be saved and for those that we know, Lord, that are resistant, we pray that you would soften their hearts, that they'd become open. They would not simply be complacent or apathetic, but they'd have a real sense of need, and you would meet that need through the words that you use speaking through us. May you work your wonders in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.